Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate. Today we're talking about commercial lending. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today our guest, Stephen Gunzenhauser, goes over everything you need to know when you're financing a deal, whether it's large or small. It's a beautiful Thursday here in Charlotte. We're lucky to have Stephen Gunzenhauser here with us from BB&T. I'm joined with our co-host, Jim. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what you do? Sure. As Kevin said, my name is Stephen Gunzenhauser. I am a relationship manager with BB&T here in Charlotte. I've uh, been with the bank ever since I graduated college. A couple different roles. Credit analyst up in Winston-Salem. Portfolio manager for uh, seven, eight years and uh, a lender so to speak, for the last two years, basically. So I was on the CNI side of, of the world, commercial real estate for the last four years, and uh, excited to be here and excited to kind of share my experience from both the credit side and the sales side. So I've, you know, I've been on both sides. I know how the credit world works, which I think helps me out as a lender because I can kind of bypass some of, the, some of the junk early on when we're looking at deals. Definitely. Yeah, Stephen, we're really excited to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about like what type of properties that you lend on? Sure. Yeah. And let me just start in general by yeah. saying that um, I do work for BB&T, but you know, for the purposes of this conversation, this is just kind of based on my experience. I'm not speaking for BB&T. Absolutely. Um, or necessarily our <laughs> policies, but I just have to get that disclaimer out there. Absolutely. In disclaimer accepted. In speaking with a lot of other people in the banking industry, this seems to be pretty common in general. So I'll speak in generalities until we need to get more specific, and I can. That being said, what was your question? Yeah, no. I was... <laughs> <laughs> All right. What type of deals do you, you guys fund at BB&T in the commercial loan division? Is it everything, sure. like all types of asset classes? Or... So my role is specifically with income producing properties. So any income producing property, whether it's retail, office, multifamily, self-storage, hospitality, industrial, uh, LIHTC, low-income housing, tax stuff, mobile homes. That's all under my realm. We have a couple different groups. We have a, a CNI, commercial industrial group, and they focus more on operating businesses, owner-occupied manufacturing. And then we have a corporate group that focuses specifically on, you know, high, larger CNI kind of companies. So for me, I can. I'm a generalist. I can look at everything, and that's not the same for all banks. Right now, our general appetite is is pretty open, and so I can look at any property. Normally, somewhere between five hundred thousand million dollars of loan size up to a hundred million, which is unique because a lot of banks, you know, have limits or they have um, restrictions of what they can look at. So we are free to roam here in the Charlotte metro area and west. So we're still a community-based bank, and I can focus on like the Charlotte metro area, up seventy-seven, and everything west. So here, Hickory, Asheville, that whole range. So it really just depends on the contacts I have in the region and the deals that are coming up. You know, we, they don't necessarily try and steer us in any way, but you find success with certain property types and you tend to yeah. go from there. Yeah. Are there any property types that you've seen a lot of success in lately? I've had some success with hospitality recently. Part of that is we just seem to have um, an appetite for it right now. It's I understand the, you know, the underwriting process and how it goes. And, and frankly, when you make one contact in the hospitality industry, it's sometimes a lot easier to meet other people who also have properties that are always looking for financing, you know, whether it's development or just acquisition or, you know, value add kind of plays. Yeah. To piggyback off of that, mentioning what's hot now, is there times when some of these sectors get 
shut down or you, you step away from them? Does that happen in your industry? Not specifically your bank, but the industry? In the industry, absolutely. And that happens for a number of reasons. One is that there are concerns about the market in general. Everyone knows multifamily has been very hot here in Charlotte. A lot of banks have kind of stepped away because it's tough to rationalize rents at 250 260 a square foot going on forever. You know, it's great when 100 people are moving in every day to Charlotte, but not everyone at the end of the day is always going to want to live downtown for, you know, $1,200 for a 500 square foot yeah. studio. So every bank goes up and down. It's also relative to the other deal or the other loans that the bank has. So we may get heavy in uh, multifamily and we may say, let's hold off on necessarily funding new development projects. But we're a little bit different than maybe some other banks, and I don't want to speak for them, but if we have clients, they're always going to come first. And so we never turn the spigot off completely. Yeah, We will work with our clients as best we can for those projects. We'll just be more selective. And that's not something, that's not me. You know, that, that's not my manager. That's coming from the top down. And right. we have to relay that message. But the challenge, like I was telling Kevin earlier, is that, our clients don't necessarily know this. They don't know that on March 1st, we're, you know, shutting down, so to speak, multifamily. And we don't know how long it's going to last. And so when people come and tell us, hey, I've got an opportunity, we may have to say, we really like it, but it's not something we can really focus on right now. Yeah. And so that's when these either rumors or word kind of gets around the community that, oh, so-and-so bank isn't doing, you know, hotels anymore. And so what you tend to find sometimes is that these clients kind of drift away, but it might just be for three months until we can get some loans either taken to the permanent market or they pay off or they're sold or something like that. So that's our challenge too, is to never tell a client that we're not doing anything because that's not the case. There's always extenuating circumstances where we can do a loan and we want to do loans, but we're told when, you know, deals are, uh, I mean, when, you know, we can do a certain property type. Yeah, I like what you say about the difference between you and a lot of other banks is you, you guys do value a relationship with your clients. So it's good to know that even if some parts of the lending world might be overextended, I feel like BB&T does value the relationships they have with their with their lenders. And that's the last time I'm going to give them any more plugs. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We um, you know try and be a partner with our clients. And I think that comes across in the way we deal with them when good times are good. And when times are bad, you know, I mean, our terms may not necessarily always be the most aggressive in the market, but I mean, go back and look at 2008 through 2010, we were doing just fine. And I think that speaks to just our longevity and our stability and the way we kind of underwrite too. And we underwrite yeah. a little bit, maybe more conservatively than some other banks, but we, it's shown that that works out for us. Were you guys still lending on a lot of commercial properties in the 08, 09, 2010 period, or did it slow down from the top? It slowed down just in general. Yeah. I started in January of 08 up in Winston-Salem and uh, went through a leadership program and then came out as a credit analyst. I have no idea what we were doing. In terms of the lending side, I do know that a lot of banks had a lot of troubled assets and that's where a yeah. lot of the focus was for everybody. Yeah. It was a hot potato. It was um, a challenge in the end. Everyone always kept talking about, oh, the good old days. Well, there were no good old days. For me. <laughs> I started January of 08 right before everything just you know went down. So I'm not sure, but... You know, everyone was kind of in the same boat back then and everyone kind of right-sized the ship if they survived. 
yeah i'm curious at like what is the general feeling about where the industry's heading in the next couple of years from the banking side because i know investors have our perspective on what we see what's happening what what are some of the things that you guys are seeing we're seeing fintech you know financial technology be a larger part of our daily lives you know branches are always going to be important to you know to a bank and its its health what's happening is that there's a a consolidation that banks are getting smarter with their branches and their locations. So if they're going to have a branch and all the resources that go into that, whether it's you know personnel and the cost of that asset and keeping it up, they want to make sure it's as efficient as possible. With financial technology, I can't speak too much beyond that. It's going to help speed things up, you know, from the client's perspective. Whether that means they, you know, someone comes in, they're looking for a loan, and it can get processed with maybe an algorithm as opposed to five people working on it for a week or so, maybe that speeds it up. So long as the same risk parameters and the risk appetite is still there, and they'll figure that out. Paper is still a big part of banking in general. It's just a big part. So not everything is going to go online, but I think if the banks can get more efficient, then they're going to embrace that more. I, I know every bank is, it's a focus. A lot of times it's just words, but I think more banks are putting money towards that being a reality and the way it can fit in with their business because they don't want these financial tech companies to come in and kind of push them out of their bread and butter. Looking into stepping back to what we were talking about with a little bit of the properties you deal with, what are you looking at when somebody brings you a deal? Like how do you break it down as far as, I guess it's an open question because it could be an existing asset. It could be a new Mm -hmm. asset that's being built. It could be a variety of different investments, but how do you break down that investment when somebody tries to put it on your plate and ask you to finance it? It all depends on the property type. Let's say you come to me and you want to acquire a multifamily property. At the end of the day, we're going to be looking at cash flow, you know, and what the debt service coverage is going to be. At that point, you know, we're going to want to know, is it existing? Do you want to develop? Is it existing? Let's say it's existing. Is it stabilized? Is it a value add play? Are you a GC that can go in there and upfit these properties. We would look at where rents are, maybe where you project those rents and you know what that path's going to be there and whether you need financing for that. And yeah. so there are a lot of different, you know, things that come in, but what we're looking for is you've identified a property, you've identified an opportunity, and how are you going to execute based on your experience and your resources to make that a reality? And are your numbers and is your logic sound? You know, if you go into a market where rents are currently seven fifty and the market really is nine hundred and you think you can get twelve fifty, that's gonna be a challenge for us because it's not it's not reality, right? You can make, you know, a four star property in a neighborhood that supports, you know, a three star at best. And right. um, you know, we can't find it. We're gonna finance based on what we think are conservative underwriting, you know, principles and also what the market is. I mean we have to recognize what the market is and what it has been the last couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about like what type of conservative principles you're underwriting at, whether it's like a debt service coverage ratio or can you yeah, talk a little bit yeah. about that? So we have different debt service coverage ratios for different properties, and that is pretty consistent across the industry in terms of what we like to look at. So let's say, you know, on average, most banks are going to want at least a 120 debt service coverage for any property. Now it can go down to 110, up to 130, maybe up to 140 if it's a single family. But let's just say 120 in general. So that's kind of where we start. 
and we size a loan based on our underwriting to get to a loan amount. And if it's 70% loan to value, 75, the loan to value is, isn't as impactful. It kind of is what it is at the end because we have to make sure the cash flow works. And when we underwrite and this, you know, this may be part of the conversation later on, but I see a lot of people who have great performance and projections are great, but that is pie in the sky that is you know everything's beautiful zero vacancy that's just not reality that's not the way we can underwrite we're always going to have some sort of vacancy put in there and what that does is let's say it's you know hundred thousand in um gross income you know five percent vacancy typically put in the management fee some structural reserves that starts adding up to a point that maybe our loan amount is you know you come and ask for a million dollars and we get to 850 well there's a reason for that it's because we have to put in some you know, conservative, maybe, I mean, market, but, you know, most banks do this, whether, you know, BB&T is a little bit higher, a little bit lower, I don't know, but we have to put in a couple things because at the end of the day, the bank is looking at this as if, if everything goes wrong, like everything went wrong back in 2008, 2010, (laughs) what is the cost for the bank to take over this property? And so that's why we'll include things like a management expense, because if the bank takes it over, they're not going to manage it. You know, we finance a lot of properties. We're not a management company, but they would have they would find a management company to manage it. And so it's it's not just what happens if the property doesn't do well. It's worst case. If we have to take it over, what are those minimum costs that we have to make sure are in there for our, our own, you know, understanding and purpose? Right. Yeah. The bank does. I don't think folks in general take that into account that at times it's banks do have to take these properties back and they have to you know quantify those expenses yeah and that happens that's not our goal we don't want we don't want these properties these (laughs) are your properties we want everyone to be successful but if you don't include a management fee for example we have to put that in there whatever that percentage ends up being and that's going to reduce the you know availability of um, what we can finance right yeah no i mean People love to throw uh, daggers at, at the banks, but without the banks, you know, there's no loans being made and they're going to make wrong loans sometimes, but it's kind of a blessing because if they didn't make, you know, a lot of loans, then a lot of things couldn't get done. There's risk in every loan. Right. I mean, you know, and, and that's my challenge too, as you know, a lender, relationship manager working with credit is I'm selling the story. I'm selling your story just as much as I'm selling, you know, obviously I want the loan. I want to get this done, but if I don't think it's right, I'm not going to push something that doesn't make sense because that reflects poorly on me and it's not good for the bank in general. But if I do believe in it, and it's not just the numbers, it's not just a quantitative story, it's the qualitative story. I want to know what your experience is. I want to know what you've done in the past. I want to, I want to know if you want to buy a 100-unit uh, multifamily property that you've had experience running and renovating 50 units, 75 units, and kind of working your way up. Because we get a lot of people that have money, you know, certified rich guys, and they just want to invest in something. and they're not going to be involved. And that's a challenge for us because we want our clients to be fully involved in these projects that they're, you know, taking over and, and running. Now, that's a good point. Because, I mean, if you can't buy into the story of the, the lender, you know, how, how are you going to sell that to the rest <laughs> of the bank? Like, for example, I remember several months ago, you looked at a deal for me out of market mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. It was 25, 50,000 square foot office building. Mm-hmm. And you were like, well, why are you doing this? Like, that's totally out of your market. But once, you know, I could put on paper that, you know, I was from that area. I had business up in that area. 
Yeah, I had exactly. experience in that. You were like, okay, I'll run this up the chart. And that sold it. That you already, I believe you already had property up there. Mm-hmm. You were from there. You were spending time there kind of getting it. I think it was a turnaround. Right. And you're going to spend time there, hands on doing that. That helped sell the story. The numbers made sense. You right. know, you can't, I mean, the numbers are going to make sense or they're not going to make sense. And we can't pull the wool over our credits uh, partner's eyes. You know, they're right. going to, they're going to sniff it out. Right. But exactly right. Your story helped us do that in a market where we don't have a large presence. Right. That's awesome that the importance of having that experience and that story. Uh, what are some other things that investors can do to be better prepared when they're looking to finance new acquisitions? Like what are some things they should do ahead of that? Sure. First, have realistic projections and pro forma and an understanding of the market. You know, I'm going to ask when someone comes to me and say, we have this opportunity I'm going to say, well, what about this opportunity kind of attracted you to it? You know, was it the value add because you you have experience in doing that? Is it it's stabilized and basically turnkey or you think there's something in the market that no one else knows about? I want to know why people think, you know, it's a good opportunity. Beyond that, with those projections, understanding how the bank kind of underwrites and looks at things. We touched on this. We stress our interest rates sometimes. So if you expect to get you know, a 5% interest rate, know that when we size a loan, it's not going to be 5% because 5% isn't going to be here forever. We may have to go a little bit higher, which may adjust the interest rate. Have your personal financials ready and be able to explain anything on them. And for larger investors, understand and be able to explain what your contingent liabilities are, especially relative to your liquidity. That's always a concern because if one of these projects, you know, goes wrong and you're on the hook for it, it may be great on our side. Our property might be great, but suddenly this non-performing asset may be taking a lot of cash from you know the guarantors that we have. So personal financials have that understood and kind of put together. The package in general, you know who the competitors are, what the market is, and where you see it going with supportable documentation. I know a lot of people don't have access to things like CoStar; it's right. very expensive. But if you have comps and say, hey, this is you know what the market's going for. With, you know, reasonable comps too. You can't just, you know, cherry pick the best ones, but all that helps us. And we'll take that information, kind of combine it with the information we get and then put something together. What point do you want to see, or maybe you don't, what, where, where do you stand on financials and, and how they're presented to you? I guess more descriptively, when do you want audited financials? When do you want accountant prepared financials? Is there a point when you expect that? So in the C&I world, we get more into compiled, reviewed, and audited statements. For commercial real estate, most of the time, company-prepared statements and tax returns are fine because we're dealing with a lot of single-asset entities. And it's just not necessarily worth it for a lot of um, investors and clients to put together reviewed statements unless there's something messy. You know, like a lot of builder developers of single-family houses will have audited reviewed statements because they've got a lot of things going on at once. But if you have a single-asset uh, hotel... We don't really need that. Okay. Yeah. Just company prepared statements are normally fine for um, initial underwriting. And I know before you mentioned stress testing the interest rate, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, are there any other stress tests that you like to see? Like sometimes when I underwrite deals, I stress test like the (laughs) vacancy and then also like the market rents that we're getting to see if it were to drop 15%, you know, are we still good? What other stress tests do you like to see? You're absolutely right. It depends on the property. So let's say for uh, hospitality, you, you know, looking at a hotel and uh, occupancy has averaged 75% the last five years, ADRs averaging 115. We may go back and say, or let's say it was 115 in 2018, but is 105 
as an average from 2011 to 2018. We may say, okay, 2018, I mean, we all kind of understand that hotels are in a, they're in a good spot right now. I mean, you know, whether the market projects, you know, ADR stabilizing for the next year, like it's, it's a good time for a hotel as compared to 2011. So sometimes we will back that down, whether it's an average of the last five, six years, or whether we just back it down to a level that our credit is comfortable with. We'll do things like that. For office and retail properties, yeah, I mean, we'll increase vacancy or we'll stress vacancy or see where the break-even point is. You know, if the property, if we can show that the property works at 65% occupancy, that's a good thing because, you know, I mean, things like that. Vacancy is easy. The rate, you know, we stress at a certain level, but it's not something we, we mess with too much. It's kind of is what it is. But a lot of times vacancy and then rents. If you, If there are projected rents at let's say 30 bucks a square foot for retail and the market is 25, but you're going to do some improvements. Well, we may say, let's still look at it at 25 because we don't know if you're going to get those $30 square foot rents just because we don't know what's, you know, in store in the future. Right. Yeah. I can't say enough about stressing it on the, where's the break even point you go find the break even point on an investment. I'll tell you a lot right there, whether you want to be doing it or whether you don't want to be doing it. Cause like you said, like a 65% occupancy, does that work? Does it break even there? Then that's pretty encouraging. Yeah. And it gives you an opportunity, you know, an idea of what the opportunity is for the asset just right. in general. So yeah, there are a number of ways that we, we stress things. We don't necessarily stress it to stress it, to make it look as bad as possible. <laughs> right. um, it's more just to get an understanding of what our risk as a bank is to take this on and finance this asset. Right. What are some of the mistakes you see investors who are coming to you with a package? What are some of the mistakes you see that they make where they just miss something or they didn't stress test it or they didn't underwrite it correctly? What are some of those common things you see that people mess up on? A lot of the time it is, it kind of comes down to their initial underwriting and the numbers they're putting in there. They assume 0% vacancy. That's not real world. (laughs) They're assuming an interest rate of 5%. Or something lower than what maybe market is. And, you know, that might be the actual interest rate, but that's not how we're going to have to look at it. They don't include management because they're going to, air quote, manage it themselves. That won't work. They won't include structural reserves. I mean, that's the main thing at the end of the day is just having an understanding of what the market is and how the property is actually going to perform. Also, you know, some investors assume that there's non-recourse 95% financing out there. Now it's out there. <laughs> But it's going to be a it? lender that's different. <laughs> How do we find that? It's, it's not going to be. It's not going to be one of the banks around town. You know, all, all banks have different risk parameters, but for most banks, we're looking for recourse guarantees, and we're looking for equity in the realm of at least fifteen to twenty percent, depending on the project. I mean, if you want higher, there are you know places you can go to get it, but. You know, sometimes people say, well, so-and-so bank's offering me this. I'm like, okay, well, I I mean, I wish you the best and good luck. If you can get it, that's great. It's yeah. just not something we're, you know, able to do. And a lot of that's so-and-so they heard is doing this and that might be for they a heard. occupied office or similar. Yeah. yeah, a friend of a friend knew someone that uh, got 95% financing and that's the standard now. Well, that's, that's not right. the standard. Yeah. The standard is what you get. Yeah, it was a free and clear building that they'd owned for 20 years and it was owner-occupied and In they it, refied it at 95% yeah. of... Every circumstance changes. Right, right. For smaller deals outside of your specialty or yeah. your capability, how should investors meet and network with other bankers who might be able to help you know, lend on properties that they're looking to acquire? 
I'd say the easiest way is just to go out and network, you know, go to yeah. lunches, go to meetings, go meet with someone, even if you don't think it's necessarily worth your time. Everyone's got to eat, whether it's breakfast or lunch or, or even dinner. Go out, just meet people and understand that if some, you're talking to someone right now that maybe, you know, your worlds don't fit, they're going to fit. Charlotte's a big city, yeah. but it's a very small city. I'm from Charlotte and I'm still amazed at how small the city is and how you know many people you know and connect with so and also know that every bank you know i i do commercial real estate but we have a cni group we have a small business group we have a large corporate group and so i have access to not only everyone at bbnt but bankers tend to move around a lot to a lot of different banks so i know bankers at other banks people send me referrals from other banks because it doesn't fit their world and i'll do the same and so when you start knowing people, you can start referring people and you kind of get connected. And, you know, a small investor, if they do things right, are going to become a large investor right? or a larger investor someday. And so you want to make sure you just know people in general. It's it, it's never bad for someone to know you so long as it's being known for a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what are some of the networking or the lunches that are good to meet other bankers? At? Like, what are some of those meetups or groups that you guys go to? In the commercial real estate industry, there's, you know, some just general networking events. I, I'm drawing a blank off yeah, the top of my too. head of what they are. But, uh, you know, real estate markets, like a snapshot of the real estate market. If you go to any- Oh, oh, I, I know, the ULI, um, Urban Land yeah. Institute. Um, I'm part of that group, and they do a really great job. That's where a lot of real estate professionals kind of meet and are members of in the Charlotte area. And, you know, a lot of investors, a lot of developers are there as well. So that's a big, big one in Charlotte, definitely. Yeah, I was going to say almost anything that's around the county and building, like if you went to an event based on that, there's going to be bankers there for sure because they're they're part of that deal Mm -hmm. or they want to be part of that deal. And also a lot of the um, more like donation based things, if there's a fundraiser or whatnot, that's always a good place, I think, to know that there's going to be bankers showing themselves from the corporate world. I mean, you know, we end up at some of the same uh, charity events. Uh, unintentionally. Uh, or, yeah, unintentionally, yeah. And then it's, oh, i got to see Kevin again. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, that, as far as leveraging bridge loans, what is your opinion on investors who want to or need to leverage bridge loans where they're purchasing like a underperforming asset? Do you guys do that? I'm guessing not. What's your thoughts on them? No. At the end of the day, we don't really do bridge loans. I mean, we'll do some shorter term loans, but if you're getting a bridge loan, it normally means there's an issue with the asset. It's underperforming. It's coming out of like an Oreo group at a bank. There's something, it's not at the point that it's necessarily financeable for a three to five year term, but it's there for a reason. I mean, people, you know, need funds to to acquire properties and there are times where, you know, someone will come and say, hey, I've got this, purchase this asset on a bridge loan. It's, you know, high percentage, you know, 11%, 12% interest rate for 12 months. I've done a lot of work over these last six months. I've gotten it stabilized. Can you look at it? And yeah, we can take out, you know, bridge loans from there. But most of our loans are somewhere, you know, if it's development or even acquisition in the three to five year kind of time frame. So you'll want to see like a trailing six month, what's been going on once they... Yeah, probably at least trailing six months. Uh, three months is still a little too new for us to get comfortable. So trailing 12 is the best. Trailing six, we can do. It It all just depends on the circumstance and the uh, and the operator too, you know, of, of their experience in doing this. Yeah. 
Yeah, that can go both ways. I mean, I've tried to buy uh, businesses lately and I'm a fan of a trailing 12 myself, but mm-hmm. you'll see a business that's booming and they'll want to they'll want to do a current, you know, they'll want to go off the most current current month and then expand it, multiply it that way. Well, yeah. There's a reason we like to try and use 12. December and it's a retail business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah. there's a reason we like to try and take it out that way. What about refis? Do you do a lot of refinancing? Yeah. Yeah, we do. I mean, we do acquisition. And uh, so, I mean, you know, we refinance existing loans in our book. We'll just, you know, renew those existing loans. But refinancing debt from another bank, that's, right. that's always great. We get a loan and we take it from someone else as well. Yeah, and you um, try and create a new relationship with their other business. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that follows the same parameters as a new acquisition, except this time the owner already has a couple of years of tax returns that they can provide to us and we can they can show that they're a good owner operator. Yeah, they've been paying the debt. They've been paying the debt. And, you know, whether they're just unhappy with the current bank, whether their interest rate isn't good or whether they want to re-am. You know, sometimes someone's had an asset out there. It was originally on a 20-year AM and they've, it's been five years. If the appraisal supports it, you know, still useful life out there. We can go out 20 years again, yeah. kind of re-am it for them, but within reason. If you have an asset from 1970 and they want a 25-year AM, that's going to be difficult depending on the asset. Yeah, it kind of goes back to your story on why you want to refi it. And if you're pulling cash out, I'm sure you see a lot of guys that want to expand their business. And that's one tool they can use is to refi a building, an asset, yeah. pull some cash out and go that revenue stream. Yeah. Our challenge comes when someone wants to cash out an existing property and then use that cash as equity into the new property. We Why are, is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. It sounds great. <laughs> it sounds great for the borrower, but banks have to worry about that becoming an HVCRE issue, high volatility commercial real estate issue. It's when we truly don't have owner's cash equity into a deal. So what happens then is the bank has to set aside, I believe, 150% of their allocation over what they normally have to put aside. So we do a loan for $10 million. We have to put set aside a certain amount of money into reserve to kind of balance that out. We have to put additional money in there. What if it's a situation where they bought the building for $10 million, they paid it down to $5 million, mm-hmm. and they, were, they just want to cash out $2 million out of that to go to go do whatever whatever expansion they want to do to buy a new business does that fall under what you're what you're explaining kind of yeah okay. but, but i mean but we can do that cuz to me you're you're not really over borrowing versus right. let's say you know you bought the building for 10 million now it's worth 15 million you still owe 9 on it you want to go borrow three more yeah i see where you're the bank might have I'm not saying we you. can't do it. I'm just saying we have to be careful if we when running into HV Siri and where the equity is coming from. Right. I do a decent amount of cash outs on properties because values are high, are high right now. Right. And so people want to cash out, take some money and, you know, use it to put into another investment. We just have to be careful if we're financing both of those properties to make sure that we know that. I mean, there's so many regulations that we have that we just need to make sure that we're documenting everything. Yeah. And Jim and I are probably not near as familiar, if at all, on some of these. So is there any other, like, that seems like that, that comes up more often than not. Are there, are there any other regulations you can talk about in general? There are new forms every day that we have as a bank. <laughs> I don't want to send you these forms. I, I don't go home and get under a blanket and smile and laugh about how many forms and documents <laughs> oh, I have to send five you. Have to sign. Yeah. These are given to us. And we're told you have to have this filled out by your clients. You know, everything flows downhill and 
in life, you just hope you're not at the bottom of that hill, right? So when I send you a form, let's say it's a beneficial ownership form, we have to know where money's coming from these days. You know, know your customer, KYC, the, the BSA, AML stuff. What is BSA, AML? If I got that right. Businesses Secrecy Act Anti-Money Laundering. We're going to check you on that. Is yeah. that right? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Don't check. Just uh, you Someone's know. Googling uh, you right yeah. now. Uh, yeah. Assume it's correct. So at the end of the day, we need to know who our customers are and what the ownership of each entity is and where the money's coming from. And so that that's just one new form that I have to send and I can't fill it out. Our clients have to fill it out. Even if I have all the information, our clients have to fill it out. And that is sometimes just like pulling teeth with people. They don't want to fill it out. Well, if you want the loan, it has to be filled out. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make it difficult. That's just, you know, that's how it is. Yeah. We talked on our last podcast with a property manager and we got into the legalities of, of who he can rent to as far as citizenship. Yeah. So I thought it'd be a good question to ask you as well. For example, I'm doing a new construction. I've got a investor that's that's financing the construction loan. Mm-hmm. He's a foreigner. So I wasn't involved really as much in that loan process because I wasn't on the loan. But can you talk to us about dealing with foreigners and what kind of credit you can extend to them, if any? I have not really had a ton of experience in lending to foreigners. The only thing I've had any experience is is dealing with an EB-5 program. That's so funny. I have that on my list. I didn't email you that, but I really? wanted it. I wasn't sure if we could talk about it. Can we talk a little bit about EB-5? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll talk to you this to the extent that I know about it, but I believe the EB-5 program extends kind of as a fast track to get investments into the U.S. for non-citizens. And to, to become citizens. To become right? citizens and to fast track that on a, get them a green card. Yeah. And for the size of the investment. For right? the size of the investment. I believe the old amount was about 500000 but through new policies of the administration, I think at the end of this year, it's going up to 850000 okay. as the initial wow. investment. So what you're it's having sizable increase. are a lot of people that are trying. It was 250 at one point. I think, I mean, before. it's been going up. Yeah. And now, you know, in an effort to maybe restrict immigration into the U.S., I don't know, but that number's going up, I believe, to 850000 which you're going to find kind of a rush at the this yeah. year for people to come in, pair, partner with, you know, the investors here in the U.S., it's a great program. Absolutely. But I've had limited experience with it. I've gotten something approved with the, the EB-5 program. So as bank, we're comfortable with it so long as we understand what that process looks like. Yeah. That'd be interesting for real estate investors to leverage EB-5. I guess you call them investors. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing they don't care as much about hitting amazing returns as they do as the project being complete so they can get their green card, right? Yeah, because I believe the investor gets to determine what that return is to those investors. And a lot of times, I mean, it could not be very much, but if the end result is a green card, they're, they're going to basically take, you yeah. know, um, a very little return. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk. I don't have it firsthand. Well, I've kind of dealt with it. I've sold some properties to some foreigners before. To your point, sometimes foreigners just in general want to get money out of their country for the simple reason it might not, they don't feel like it's safe there. I think we take that for granted. Yeah, we know. We think things are bad and things, you know, are challenging, but it, you know, people don't feel that their money is safe in their country. And so, yeah, I, 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 you know, always nice to kind of take a step back and say, man, you know, things are actually pretty good here. <laughs> right, right. Can you talk a little bit about like um, for any of our listeners who are maybe in single family investments, they've mm-hmm. got a portfolio of like 10 or 20 houses. 
What are some things they can do to help prepare them to grow to larger portfolios or larger deals? What would your recommendation be as a banker of what looks good on how to how to move into like smaller commercial deals? Sure. So I'll say this. At our bank, I wouldn't necessarily say we have a a program of kind of corralling 10 or 15 single family properties and um, you know putting a loan out there. We tend to focus more on, you know, if it's going to be residential focused, like multifamily properties, if you want to move from single family to commercial, probably the easiest way is to sell some of those properties, get cash and have enough, whether it's 20, 25% into purchasing of your first small commercial property, whether it's retail or office or self storage or something like that in whatever direction you want to go. You know, single family is different than commercial in terms of, you know, the overall time and effort that goes into it. So if you don't have any commercial experience, either partner with someone that does and be, you know, a minority investor in that or sell some property and go look for something larger. Or let's say you have, you know, some duplexes and quadplexes, but you want to move more into the multifamily space. Right. Go find an eightplex. Go find a small 16 unit, you know, rehab property. Go find a 32 and work your way up. You know, it's not necessarily going to happen overnight, but suddenly if you, you know, purchase a 32 unit, a 70 unit, you know, property isn't that far off, but it is from a duplex. And that's the difference. So it's baby steps, which I know a lot of investors don't necessarily want to hear, but it's a process, at least from our ability to finance it, because that kind of goes back to the story of what you've done in your experience and whether, you know, on the banking side, on the credit side, they think that necessarily is too much to kind of chew off at the, at the moment. Do you see, you mentioned partnering with someone. Do you see a lot of that where you'll have, you know, a guy that might be beginning his stage in the investing world and then he, he partners with the guy that's got, you know, a lot more experience and a lot more cash maybe? Do you see a lot of that? Yeah, yeah. It, it really just depends on the dynamic of the relationship between, you know, whether they're friends or neighbors that, you know, decide to go in together and some people just have cash, you know, that they want to put somewhere. And uh, like, let's say I had $100,000 and I don't really know where to start, but I said, hey, Kevin, if you buy a commercial building, you know, I'm willing to be a, you know, 20% effectively passive investor in this. I'll give you a hundred thousand and we'll go into together. You know, that's an example. Some people will, you know, help younger guys kind of along the way and get them involved. I know with hospitality, you know, the extended families of a lot of the Indian culture, you know, they'll get someone in and maybe spot them or, you know, give them the money for the first investment. They'll develop it, they'll sell it. And now this person who started with, you know, fifty thousand dollars in after after the sale, they now have two hundred thousand, and then they can go be a larger investor in the next property and the next property, and then you know at some point they've got a million dollars in in net worth over the course of maybe a couple of years. Right. It just depends on your situation, your cash, and how hard you're willing to work. You know, there's sweat equity as well. Let's say someone has the money, and you say, "Look, I'm willing to go in there and manage this thing." That's worth something as well. Yeah. Well, sweat equity is an interesting topic in itself. I mean, we started the conversation talking about what people needed to bring when they brought a deal to you. What do you look at? What's the max you'll kind of give someone on a sweat equity deal? The max loan amount? Well, yeah, that's kind of a broad <laughs> range. But like, like how, when, will you, when will you call equity? it off and be like, all right, look, like we'll, we'll give you some kind of sweat equity on this deal, but we're not going to give you that much. Well, it all still ends up going back to cash flow. And so the difference is, is whether you're going to be doing that work yourself or you're going to kind of hire it out. Yeah. So you can improve the property. We'll give you some sweat equity. If you want to, you've got, if you've got some experience where you've done this before Mm -hmm. or you're, 
you know, you're a contractor, you're not a contractor, whatever. But once it's established, yeah, you've still got to have those costs, I guess is what you're saying in there for management and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I got you. What is like the most common way you see investors funding down payments? Well, cash. Cash. Yeah, cash is king. I mean, that, you know, there's got to be equity in the game and it's got to, you know, come in the form of cash or, you know, cash out from other properties. Like, let's say that someone cashes out a property that's not financed with BB&T and they've got, you know, $5 million, that can come in. It it's, becomes an issue when we are providing the cash out and then financing a property with that equity. Are there commercial loans that include renovation costs for properties that are in disarray and need a lot of work? Yeah. Yeah, we do that. It just depends on um, what those upfit costs are and whether the loan amount supports it based on the projected rents. We do PIPs, property improvement plans for hotels all the time. You know, let's say that uh, a hotel, they've got franchise flags that run from 15 to 20 years for the most part. Every couple years, IHG decides that they want to change around their um, footprint, right, for each hotel. Or and signage so, or, or something. Or signage or something. Yeah. And so after seven, eight years, a lot of them will say, you need to complete a PIP, whether it's a million and a half, two million dollars, then we'll finance that. And basically it's kind of we'll kind of refinance the existing debt plus give them a little bit uh, cash out to make those improvements to get that additional flag moving forward. So yeah, um, we definitely do finance the renovations. Are you able to offer that additional money, whether it's from the front end that you're going to buy a property and you want to build it, so that'd be a new construction, or you're going to buy it and it needs a substantial improvement to get it rent ready, or maybe a PIP. Are you able to offer that part of it as IO until it's established? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, We'll do periods of IO. Or interest only, I should say. Interest only. It depends on the project. But yeah, we can do it up to, gosh, I think I've done it up to 36 months, depending on, you know, new construction, large multifamily. 36 months interest only is, um, you know, pretty standard, I'd say. I mean, it's a little bit. It depends on how long construction takes. But yes, we can do interest only to kind of give a period of time to get the property completed or, you know, upfit and then do stabilize, you know, get tenants in there to operate. And the idea there is to not put financial pressure on the borrower immediately with the principal and interest payments, because that's not good for anyone. We don't, right. we're not, we don't want to set up a loan for our clients to, to fail immediately. You know, that, that's not our intention. So we balance how long it's going to take the borrower and investor to, you know, complete their renovations and balance it with credit of what we feel comfortable, because at the end of the day, we do need principal to start getting paid down <laughs> at some point. Right. I'm curious, does BB&T or do you know if most banks take their deals that they finance, do they put them into the permanent market or do some some banks keep them internally as like portfolio loans? We are a balance sheet lender. And so we hold all those loans on our balance sheet. We have a group called Grambridge that focuses on taking loans to the permanent market. So if a client wants that, I would make the introduction to Grambridge and we would see whether it makes sense to take this to the permanent market. There are restrictions with the permanent market in terms of holdbacks of reserves that clients have to have. But if they're willing to do that and pay the fee, they can get non-recourse financing. And a lot of people want that. But yeah, we hold all these loans on our balance sheet and I service them. So, you know, if I do a loan for five million, ten million, two million, the client is calling me. I'm the quarterback, so to speak, and we have a lot of services and products out there. And if they have an issue, whether it's servicing, they call me. If they want another loan, they call me. Deposit me. And I'll kind of send it out to our other partners within the group, but they know that they've got one point of contact. And I don't know whether that's the same with every bank, but I know that that's how we do it at BBT, and that's kind of been our model 
for a while and kind of how we've grown by keeping that relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Stephen, tell us how listeners can get a hold of you and get to working with you and what are you looking for? Sure. So uh, easiest way, I think you guys can put my contact information uh, on this podcast, whether, uh, you know, beginning or end or whatnot, but give me a call, email me, always willing to have a conversation, hear what you're trying to do, you know, what your goals are, um, who you're partnering with and what types of properties you're looking at. At the end of the day, I'd love to be someone's primary banker. You know, that's our goal. It's not just loans. It's not just deposits. It's merchant needs, treasury needs, personal wealth needs, anything. You know, BBT is a large company. We're merging with SunTrust. We're going to be the sixth largest bank in the country headquartered here in Charlotte. So we're going to have a lot of resources and a lot of assets at our disposal. But I understand that having all of your eggs in one banking basket is not always maybe the best option for uh, borrowers, depending on their size. You know, we have a lot of borrowers, larger ones that have tiers of banking. You know, if they need a $80 million loan, they may decide to go with Bank of America. If they have a loan, you know, five to 60 million, they may know from their experience that BBT or another large regional bank has more experience there. And if they need something with a little more aggressive terms, they may go to some of these smaller banks that we talked about. So meet people at other banks. I mean, not necessarily to play bankers off one another. That we'll know at the well, end of the day. Well, you even admitted that you've got relationships with all these folks. And I'm, I'm sure out of the kindness of your heart, you'd be happy to put some folks in, in touch with these folks at other banks if it's something yeah, you can't do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, you know, if I can't do it, I'm not just going to say, no, sorry. Good not luck out possible. there, kid. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible. I mean, a lot of financing opportunities out there, and I'm bound to know someone that knows something, and I'll at least put you in the right direction of where you can go. It just it depends on, on what you're looking for. So I do think a lot of people should have relationships kind of around in general because let's say that BB&T decides that we want to get a little soft on retail. Well, another bank may be, you know, have the opposite approach, and you can go find financing there. At the end of the day, if it's a good deal, someone's going to finance it. Right. Yeah. You hate to be the heartbreaker though, right? Don't like saying no. I've got, <laughs> I've got unlimited denial authority. That's the joke. Um, I wish I could approve more myself, but I can't. <laughs> Steven, what's the best phone number and email for people to reach you at? My office number is 704-954-1470. I have an extremely long and German last name. And my whole last name is part of my uh, work email. It's a cool last name, though. Yeah. Can you um, pronounce it on Air Force? Yeah, it's Gunzenhauser. G-U-N-Z-E-N-H-A-U-S-E-R. So if you break it up into three letters each, it's actually a lot easier. Um, and so people always look, you know, they're like, Gunzenhauser, is that German? Like, yes, it's very, it's very German. How'd you figure um, But my email is S, and then my last name, Gunzenhauser, at BB. A N D T dot com. Perfect. And we'll add that to the show notes. Steven, this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you for coming on. And A lot of info. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Enjoyed it. All, All right. right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.